You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Good morning, I'm Nathan Hager. And I'm Karen Moscow. Here are the stories we're following today. First, the latest developments in the Middle East. Israel continues to push its military operations further into the southern Gaza Strip with more strikes reported overnight. We get the latest from Bloomberg's Oliver Crook. Today marks the 60th day of war between Israel and Hamas, and after a temporary ceasefire last week of seven days, fighting is once again raging on the enclave. After intense operations in northern Gaza for these last 60 days, the Israeli military campaign is really increasing its focus on the southern part of Gaza, and much of that around Gaza's second biggest city, Khan Yunus. That's a city that held more than 400,000 people before the war. We have satellite photos over the last few days that show tanks and troops massing outside the city, and under international pressure, notably increasingly from the United States, Israel says it is beginning to be more precise about its so-called safe zones and where it is striking its operations. And Bloomberg's Oliver Crook reports 137 hostages still remain in Gaza. Well, back here in the U.S., Nathan, the presidents of Harvard, MIT, and the University of Pennsylvania are set to testify before Congress today about combating anti-Semitism on college campuses. Bloomberg's Amy Morris reports from Washington. The three college presidents will testify before a House committee about stopping anti-Semitism on campuses. The hearing was called in response to protests that have sprung up on college campuses across the country since the Hamas attack on Israel in October. Committee Chair Virginia Fox says she'll hold university leaders accountable for anti-Semitism after the Hamas attack and during the Israel-Hamas war. There's no mention of any plans to investigate Islamophobia or any other forms of hate. The hearing begins at 10.15. In Washington, Amy Moore. Bloomberg Radio. Okay, Amy, thank you. Staying in Washington, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has been invited to address senators today as aid has gotten ensnarled in a debate over the southern U.S. border. Bloomberg's Ed Baxter has that story. The invitation comes from Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer to speak to senators at a classified briefing on security. Schumer says senators need to hear a direct message to untangle the circle of debate. The holdup on the security supplemental has not been over Ukraine or Israel or the Indo-Pacific, but over Republican decision to inject hard right immigration measures into the debate. Zelensky will be on video. Now, Schumer also says he set up a test vote on advancing a national security supplemental package, including funding for Ukraine, for tomorrow. Ed Baxter, Bloomberg Radio. All right, Ed, thanks. We'll be turned to the markets now, and Moody's has cut its outlook for Chinese sovereign bonds to negative. That's underscoring deepening global concerns about the level of debt in the world's second largest economy. Moody's says China's usage of fiscal stimulus to support local governments and its spiraling property downturn are posing risks to the nation's economy. In European markets, Karen, the London Stock Exchange Group is investigating a system issue that earlier affected trading in large numbers of smaller stocks. This is the third outage to strike London in a few months. 
Well, back here in the U.S., Nathan, concern mounting that the November to remember for stocks and bonds may have gone too far. We get the latest from Bloomberg's John Tucker. John. And Karen, markets may be in technically overbought conditions and extreme bullish positioning may be leaving traders exposed to corrections. The Calster's CIO, Christopher Elman, sees it this way. I don't know if the Fed is going to ease very quickly in 24. We have to readjust to that. November, people got ahead of themselves. The S&P 500 fell Monday from the highest since March 2022, while the Nasdaq 100 dropped 1% amid a decline in mega caps. Two-year yields jumped 10 basis points, and traders today will focus on the labor market, looking for any signs of weakness in the job openings or jolts data. We get that at 10 a.m. Wall Street time. I'm John Tucker, Bloomberg Radio. Okay, John, thanks for watching. Shares of Nokia this morning, they're down about 7.5% overseas. That's because AT&T has chosen rival Eric to modernize its U.S. wireless network. This project could amount to almost $14 billion over five years, and this is another blow to Nokia. In October, the company announced job cuts alongside broader struggles in its 5G infrastructure business. Well, Nathan, some of the world's biggest tech companies are collaborating on an artificial intelligence project. Meta Platforms and IBM are joining more than 40 companies and organizations to create an industry group that's dedicated to open-source artificial intelligence work. The coalition, called the AI Alliance, will focus on the responsible development of AI technology, including safety and security tools. Well, now, Karen, let's get to the latest from the COP28 summit in Dubai. Bloomberg's been speaking to some big names at the U.N. climate event, including White House Special Climate Envoy John Kerry. He's calling out big oil companies like Chevron for skipping on a commitment to slash methane emissions. You can't be outside of this initiative. The evidence is overwhelming. There is no doubt about science. And that is why I say it is inexcusable. There's no reason to be permitting unabated efforts at this point. And along with former Secretary of State Kerry, we've also heard from Bridgewater Associates founder Ray Dalio. He says it is not likely the world will meet the Paris Agreement's one and a half degree Celsius warming target. And addressing climate change, he says, is going to be expensive. It's estimated that between five and ten trillion dollars a year is one way or another. No matter if you neglect it, you'll pay the price. If you don't neglect it, you'll have the cost. Either way. And both Ray Dalio and John Kerry spoke at the Bloomberg Green Forum on the sidelines of COP28 in Dubai. And it's time now for a look at some of the other stories making news around the world. And for that, we're joined by Bloomberg's Amy Morris. Amy, good morning. Good morning, Karen. New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand says a stronger anti-gun trafficking law has led to an uptick in seizures of illegal guns. Gillibrand is releasing a report on the progress law enforcement has made after the bipartisan Safer Communities Act was implemented last year, inspired by a New York City teenager who was shot by a stray bullet back in 2009. This gun trafficking statute has been used to prosecute more than 200 defendants across at least 20 states. In total, law enforcement has seized over 1,300 guns across the country. Under the measure, the federal government put $750 million toward mental health services to help hire more than 14,000 mental health professionals across the country, including nearly 400 in New York alone. And we should note that Michael Bloomberg, the founder and majority owner of Bloomberg LP, the parent of Bloomberg Radio, is a donor to groups that support gun control, including Every Town for Gun Safety.
The race to replace expelled Congressman George Santos is already underway. Chairman of the Nassau County Republican Committee, Joseph Cairo, says they're trying to avoid another Santos fiasco by closely examining potential candidates' tr- credentials. We will have a much more thorough vetting process now. We will retain an outside firm. Uh, to do a complete background check. Both parties need to present a candidate for a special election with Democrats expected to announce their selection this week. Governor Hochul could announce a special election this week, and when it happens, that election has to take place between 70 to 80 days. A congressional oversight hearing is set for today over national park flights. Now, National Park Service rules are in effect that limit airplanes and helicopters flying over national monuments and parks. Visitors complain about the noise from those flyovers. But Bailey Wood is with the Helicopter Association International. We believe that air tours are uh, the least damaging to the parks when compared to cars and foot traffic. Some of the strictest new flight restrictions are at Mount Rushmore and Badlands National Park in South Dakota. Global News, 24 hours a day and whenever you want it with Bloomberg News Now. I'm Amy Morris, and this is Bloomberg. Karen. All right, Amy, thank you. Well, we do bring you news throughout the day right here on Bloomberg Radio, as you heard Amy say. But now you can get the latest news on demand whenever you want it. Just subscribe to Bloomberg News Now, and you can get the latest headlines right at the click of a button. Get informed on your schedule. You can listen and subscribe to Bloomberg News Now on the Bloomberg Business app, Bloomberg.com, plus Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Time now for the Bloomberg Sports Update with John Stashauer. John. Gary, Monday Night Football was in Jacksonville. The Jaguars in first place in AFC South. The Bengals under 500 in last place in the AFC North. But Cincinnati, who was playing without the injured Joe Burrow, still won in overtime 34-31. Burrow's replacement, Jake Browning, 32 of 37, 354 yards, including a 76-yard touchdown pass to Jamar Chase. The Bengals won it on a field goal with 145 to go in OT. The Jacksonville quarterback, Trevor Lawrence, left the game late fourth quarter with a sprained ankle and a couple of other injured quarterbacks Pittsburgh's Kenny Pickett needing ankle surgery he's going to miss two to four weeks so the Steelers will turn to Mitchell Trubisky beginning with their game Thursday at home against New England in New Orleans Derek Carr in concussion protocol for the second time in a month Tennessee running back Derek Henry was feared to have suffered a concussion last Sunday that turned out to be not the case Linebacker Shaq Leonard, a three-time pro bowler who was surprisingly released by Indianapolis, signing with Philadelphia. He chose the Eagles over the Cowboys. Those two teams play a big Sunday night football game this week. That's for first place. They played in the quarterfinals of the NBA's in-season tournament. Pacers beat the Celtics 122-112. Tyrese Halliburton, 26 points, his first career triple-double. And the Pelicans won in Sacramento 127-117. to So Indiana and New Orleans heading to Las Vegas for the semifinals. Thursday. Two more games tonight. The Knicks in Milwaukee. Phoenix playing the Lakers. John Stashauer, Bloomberg Sports. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. 
Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From coast to coast, from New York to San Francisco, Boston to Washington, D.C., nationwide on Sirius XM, the Bloomberg Business App, and Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak. Good morning. I'm Nathan Hager. After a November to remember for stocks and just about every investment asset rally, December has gotten off to a bit of a rough start for long traders, dialing back some of their bets that the Federal Reserve will cut rates as aggressively as they might have thought just a, a few weeks ago, really. We've seen some weakness in the latest economic data, but Fed Chairman Jerome Powell is keeping up his message that the central bank needs to move carefully on policy into next year. So let's talk more about this economy and the policy path from here on out. We are very pleased to be joined this morning by Mohamed El Arian, the Chief Economic Advisor at Allianz, the President of Queens College, Cambridge, and, of course, columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. Mohamed, thank you so much for taking the time this morning. I want to start by asking what you made of the exuberance we saw over rate cuts last month. Was it overdone? First, good morning, Nathan. Thanks for having me. Yes, I believe it was overdone. I do believe that the Fed is done raising rates, but I don't think they will validate what's currently priced in by the markets in terms of rate cuts next year. Now, we have this debate going about how long the Fed will keep rates elevated, whether it's higher for longer, high for longer. I mean, the market is pricing in 125 basis points of rate cuts next year. Does the Fed have room for that kind of easing? Not yet. Um, there's a few things that we have to keep in mind. One is the inflation dynamic. While we've had goods deflation, services remain rather hot in terms of their inflation rate. They're not disinflating fast enough. And at some point, the goods deflation will stop. So getting to 2% inflation is, the inflation target is far from automatic. Second, and we'll get more evidence this week, the labor market is still doing really well. And I suspect that the Fed would like to see some weakening in the labor market. Um, thirdly, the markets have, have already loosened financial conditions significantly. You know, Nathan, November, according to the Goldman Sachs Index of Financial Conditions, was the biggest loosening of conditions in any month since record. So there's been a tremendous loosening of financial conditions. I think if you look at those three things, they suggest the Fed will be more careful in cutting rates than what the markets expect right now. Well, let's take those three things in turn then, starting with the stickiness of services inflation. Why do you see it sticking around as much as it has? Can policy make an impact on the 
elevated services price pressures that we're seeing in this economy? Nathan, that's a key question and a very good one. The problem with falling behind on inflation, which is what has what happened to the Fed, is that you allow the inflation process to go from a few items, in this case it was energy and food, to the goods sector as a whole, and then next thing you know, it starts getting embedded in the service sector. Now, why is that a problem? Because the service sector is less sensitive to interest rate hikes. So the minute it gets embedded in the service sector, it's harder for the central bank to get to that inflation. And that's why the stickiness of the service component of inflation is something to keep on the radar screen. Hopefully, it's not going to last for a very long time. But don't forget, the outright deflation in goods is going to stop. So we do need the service sector to disinflate further. And that gets to the question about whether cracks in the labor market are what it's going to take to get inflation down to the target that the Fed has set out, 2%, because services is so tied to the labor market. What is your expectation about the data that we're going to see on the jobs market this week, uh, particularly uh, the JOLTS data today and the all-important Friday jobs report? So it's interesting that for the Joel data today, Bloomberg Economics expects only a marginal decline. Um, and Bloomberg Economics expects that the ratio of the unemployed to jo- job vacancies will stay above the historical averages. So to put it into context, Bloomberg Economics expects that ratio to go from 1.5 to 1.44, and that's still above the average. You know, Nathan, your question really comes down to something that the Fed doesn't want to talk about, but increasingly others are talking about, which is, is 2% the right inflation target? If our labor market is slightly less flexible than what it used to be before, if the supply side as a whole is less flexible around the world, which it is, should we continue to insist on a 2% inflation target, or should the Fed be willing to tolerate somewhere above that. Why would the Fed want to tolerate somewhere above that? Not because it wants to create inflation expectations, that won't happen, but instead because it doesn't want to unduly sacrifice the job market, unduly sacrifice growth, and unduly sacrifice aspects that are key to the equality of income and wealth. So that's going to ultimately be the big question is does the Fed insist on staying at 2% and therefore risk really weakening the labor market? Or is it willing to tolerate slightly higher inflation because that's the reality of, of today's supply-constrained global economy? We're speaking with Mohamed El Arian, Bloomberg Opinion Columnist and the Chief Economic Advisor at Allianz. That is a big question, Mohamed, because this Fed has really hammered home the target of 2%. They've really been laser-focused on that. Do you see room from some of the commentary that we're hearing from this Federal Reserve that it could be open to a higher inflation target? And what would that mean for the U.S. economy? So I don't think we'll ever hear this Fed say we are revising our inflation target from 2 to, say, 3%. That's not going to happen. They're not going to explicitly revise up the inflation target because they've missed it for so long and by so much that they will feel that that will undermine their credibility. What they may do is continue to promise us 2% in the future, but 
but tolerate higher, i.e. don't get to 2% very quickly. Now, what does that mean for the economy? I think ultimately the choice facing the Fed is the following, Nathan. Either they stick to 2% and risk tipping the economy into recession, or they tolerate slightly higher inflation, they don't push the economy into recession, and they find out that that is stable, that it doesn't unanchor inflationary expectations. My hope is that they will opt for the second option, but we will have to wait and see. Well, what could that mean, though, for market volatility? I mean, we've seen a lot of questioning in this market about whether the Fed is serious about the message that it's putting out there. If we do see this sort of rhetorical uh, focus on a 2% target, but maybe not a realistic 2% target, what could that mean for market volatility? So first, the sorts of volatility we've seen in the fixed income market was unthinkable not so so long ago. Um, every day, seven to 10 basis points moves, often on very little. Um, so there's something else going on in the fixed income market. What is more worrisome is the issue you've raised, which is that the Fed says things and the market totally ignored. Last Friday was a perfect example of that. Chair Powell was very clear. He said it would be premature to talk about any interest rate cuts. And he left the door open for interest rate hikes. And yet, a market that had already rallied by 40 basis points in the front end on the second year, the second year, the two-year yield had come down by 40 basis points, rallied another 10 basis points. Um, and that you know, started a whole conversation yesterday about whether... Chair Powell was steamrolled by the markets, where the Fed Powell was stiff-armed by the market. Um, the fact is that Fed communication is not as impactful as it used to be. Which gets to a question I've been wanting to ask you uh, all morning long. I mean, you've been very critical of Fed messaging, Fed policy in the past. You've said that the Fed waited too long to tackle inflation. How would you grade the Fed's performance now? So I think they've played major catch-up, which they needed to do. Um, so if you look at analysis and action where they had failed earlier, they have corrected that. Um, they've also paid much more attention to the supervisory role. So that is good. Communications remains poor. And again, we had examples of that over the last few weeks. So they still have a significant communication problem. And they still have a credibility problem. You know, the whole point of forward guidance um, is for the markets to listen to you and for the markets to do the heavy lifting for you. What we're seeing now is forward guidance, as we saw last Friday, is, com is being completely ignored by the market. And it is really interesting to me, Nathan, that the market is taking on the Fed on a variable that the Fed controls completely. I mean, think about that. The Fed, the market's basically telling the Fed, I don't care what you think about an interest rate that you set. I think you're going to do something completely different. That's quite a statement from the market to the Fed. So in our last minute, Mohammed, what would it take for the market and for you to get that credibility back from the Federal Reserve? What does the Fed need to do to regain its credibility in your view? 
So first, let me just say that in 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 terms of the outlook for 2024, I think the market should be listening more to the Fed. That's why I don't think the Fed is going to end up validating what the market is pricing in for cuts. In terms of what it takes, it takes a couple of things. One is something that the recent G30 report on central bank stresses is for central banks to be more humble, to recognize that we live in a different world and they've got to have a much broader mindset and much greater cognitive diversity. Um, and the second thing it will take is better accountability. Um, the Fed is not as accountable as it should be. And therefore, even when it makes mist repeated mistakes, and they've made five different mistakes in the last few years, even when it makes repeated mistakes, it doesn't own those mistakes. And therefore, it raises doubt among lots of people as to whether it's learning from those mistakes. So the two things it really would take is being more open-minded, having greater cognitive diversity, and secondly, better accountability. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Today, your morning brief on the stories making news from Wall Street to Washington and beyond. Look for us on your podcast feed at 6 a.m. Eastern each morning on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. You can also listen live each morning starting at 5 a.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg 1130 in New York, Bloomberg 991 in Washington, Bloomberg 1061 in Boston, and Bloomberg 960 in San Francisco. Our flagship New York station is also available on your Amazon Alexa devices. Just say Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Plus, listen coast to coast on the Bloomberg Business app, Sirius XM, the iHeartRadio app, and on Bloomberg.com. I'm Nathan Hager. And I'm Karen Moscow. Join us again tomorrow morning for all the news you need to start your day right here on Bloomberg Daybreak. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth, and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.